Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians to get most indignant about their pet hates. The podcast where we invite our history community to rise up in revolution and guillotine its most hated myths. I am your regular host, Paul Babel, and I'm here with my good friend and fellow angry archivist, Kyle Glover. Hello, everyone. Now, I normally complain about the state of the intro, but I like this one. That was quite subtle. Yeah, subtle. Mm. Hint at where we're going Mm. here. Well, this week, dear ragers, we are taking on a well-dug-in myth a source of some considerable prejudice which even infiltrates the modern discourse today. And it's an emotional subject, so stand by, because this week we are really angry, and as a result, massively sweary. Listener discretion is advised. To do this, we are joined by historian, research fellow at both Exeter University and Sandhurst, author of British, French and American relations on the Western Front, and... The history and politics of Star Wars, Chris Kempsell. Chris, welcome to History Rage. Hello, everybody. I am very happy to be here and also, you know, burning with murderous fury for the conversations to come. Yes, well, thank you. So you, you're talking to a couple of outright nerds here. Yeah. So there's one book in that list that we're going to ask on, first of all. Is it the British, French and American relations one? Of course. It's possibly not, <laughs> no. Um, so you're no stranger to a prejudiced, unsustainable empire or a cripplingly bureaucratic republic, are you? No. Uh, what led to that book, which has now, I'll add, gone to the top of my immediate reading list? <gasps> a sale. Um, well, I mean, to be honest, I'm, I'm almost tempted to just clock out now. I've, I've fulfilled my requirements. I've, I've sold a book. I, I'm, I'm a geeky historian Star Wars fan. And after having done... You're not alone. Yes. Yeah, the, you know, we are legion. And having done, you know, what some people turn as like serious First World War allied relations history, I then segued into computer games and history as a as a little kind of geeky sideline. And from that, then made the apparently logical jump to the portrayal of history and politics in the Star Wars universe, partly as a kind of a like a present to myself of this is a book I'd quite like to read. Therefore, I'm going to have to write it so that I can read it and I can dig through all of this stuff and make myself very happy. And now it kind of is, you know, basically, it's not a huge shock that, you know, history and Star Wars finds audience, but it appears to be the thing that more people will read of basically anything else I ever do in my life, Um, (laughs) which is great for the moment, but also like, oh, there's a a vision of the future that I peaked um, really early in. It's not over. Things could get disproved by later series. Yeah, if they retcon stuff, then they're, you know they're just, they're just printing content for me. Yeah, yeah. Have that history still been written? Okay, well, t- we, tell us that yeah, side there, just a little bit about your background and how <laughs> how you got where you are. So, I mean, part a large chunk of my background of my studies at university and the like was media studies because I wanted to be a football commentator. 
turns out being a football commentator is real hard because you don't need that many of them. And therefore, the obvious solution to this problem was academia, um, which is, you know, an industry that is definitely not um, difficult to get into. Um, You know, there's loads of room for new people to make their way into it and the like. But I'm kind of I'm nominally a First World War historian. So my, my PhD was in relations between British and French soldiers during the First World War, which mm. will come up heavily, I suspect, in the uh, mm. in the unfolding episode. And that's kind of really how I initially identify myself as a, as a First World War historian. But now that I've kind of been doing the other kind of bits and pieces along the line, I don't know. I don't know whether or not kind of First World War historian is you can't apply that to Star Wars. That doesn't work. Um, you can't apply, say, I'm a Star Wars historian and then try and apply it backwards to the First World War. That equally doesn't work. So I'm, I don't know, a, a heavily niched historian, um, a soon-to-be obsolete well, historian, um, somewhere in between. I, I, I'm sorry to say, but Star Wars is almost 40 years old, if not over 40 years old, and therefore... Does actually count as historic. It does count as historic, and you know the, the the stuff in it. You know, I'm I'm more than happy to call myself a Star Wars historian, but I'm worried that I start caveating my my introduction. Like, hi, I'm Chris. I'm a First World War historian, and a computer game historian, and a Star Wars. And oh, you've walked off. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're not going to get a second date. Though, no, are you? no, and and you know, I I you know been at academic conferences where you've been like that guy in the room, and I don't want to be that guy in the room. <laughs> Okay, well, let us leave that aside and uh, get get to the subject that you uh, that you initially the expert on. Okay, so this is what history rage is about. Chris, will you tell our dark side loving mob of history <laughs> rages the one thing that you wish people would just get the hell over? The idea that the French are, to quote The Simpsons, cheese-eating surrender monkeys who lose all their wars and run away and surrender. And for the love of God, please stop, because it's just bullshit. And it's just annoying, offensive bullshit. And it's ahistorical bullshit as well. Carry on. Expand. Well, I mean, there's, there's loads of aspects that we're going to draw out from it firstly the idea that you know france loses all of its wars would you know simply why does france even exist anymore then if that's the case how did it make it through all of history to reach a point as a country that is entirely unsuccessful in military endeavors to be constantly losing all of its wars is just frankly ridiculous also then we have to strip away all of the prestige that apparently Britain hangs on to with things like Waterloo and Trafalgar. Because if you're beating a country that always loses, what's what's so spectacular about that? Yeah. Um, you know, it's like going yeah, to... this, is, this is like it's like Chelsea thrashing Preston North End and expecting a victory parade. Yeah, it's like it? I punched a toddler in the face today. I've won all my fights. Um, <laughs> build me a build me an enormous column in some area of London to 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 harken back to this wonderful day of mine. Well, you only get credit for beating people who are a threat, surely. And <laughs> that yeah, the, the the issues that Britain has around France are deeply endemic of a problem of Britain and to an extent a problem of America, rather than anything to do with France. And to to varying extents, the French think we're insane for the way that we interact with our history with with them they just think we're nuts and probably with good cause yeah probably not too far removed from the truth okay right then so let's let's spread this out into quite a bit of detail then kyle if yeah. you want to dive in with question one okay so we've already mentioned uh the, the you know the most infamous the quote from groundskeeper willie in the simpsons uh, bonjour i can't do the accent we'll play the clip well, then, when Grant <laughs> Willie says, bonjour, you cheese-eating surrender monkeys, that's sort of gone wild. It's quoted all over the internet as that's what France is, that's what the French military is. Uh, there's a this meme going around that if you Google uh, French military victories, it autofills to, do you mean French military defeats? But we're recording this on the anniversary. It doesn't, by the yeah, way, because I tried it. doesn't. It. That's just Photoshop. But we're recording this on the anniversary of the death of Henry V and arguably the turning point in the Hundred Years' War. The French won the Hundred Years' War and they won quite a lot of other things. Yeah, they did. So um, can we go into some of the details of what campaigns and wars France has won? 
Yeah, I mean, let's start with the Hundred Years' War, because I think it's important to recognise that the view that, you know, this cheese-eating surrender monkeys thing is, you know, it's a political statement. It's a, it's a statement about, you know, there was a problem endemic with France. And you don't have to look too far to find things like Jacob Rees-Mogg blaming, you know, bad relations with France, because apparently they're still upset about Agincourt, which is just fucking nonsense um it's it was like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago um a single battle of a a war that you know famously lasted quite a while that the french won and apparently deep within you know the core of their national psyche is this tremendous annoyance that quite a lot of soldiers got shot by archers and that is just dictating all of their modern political choices. So that alone is, says, I mean, you, you could say plenty about Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, that let's alone, not. <laughs> sorry? Let's not. So let's not. Yeah, let's we not. are history rage, not um, politics rage. But I think that gives an insight into the political aspect yeah. that surrounds this. So, yeah, the French win the Hundred Years' War. We are clinging on to a single battle that did not prove to be defining in the overarching hundred-year-long military campaign. So, you know, I, I spent a while thinking about how contrary I wanted to be with this list. And there were things that, you know, we should we should flag up along the way. Napoleon did very well right up until the moment when he didn't. You know, there were a lot of wars of the X number of alliances um, that take place in the uh, end of the 18th century, in the beginning of the 19th century, that Napoleon does pretty well out of for a good chunk of them. Britain and France fight together in the Crimean War and win it. You know, as much as that war could be said to have had a you know a decisive military outcome, it's pretty clear that the, the, the you know the Russians have lost by the end of it. So you know there is a long-standing alliance between Britain and France. But bearing in mind a question that we're going to come to later. I think the most contrary answer to this is the American War of Independence. Yeah, yeah I will allow it. Yeah, yeah, yeah go I don't for it. think the Americans are winning that without the French. And I don't think Britain is struggling to, to get involved and, and form any form of decisive outcome in that if they weren't also terrified of French fleets in the Atlantic, French presence on the European continent and all of the aid that the French were shipping across to their not quite yet revolutionary brethren. So I think the the idea that the, the, the French are still clinging to Agincourt when I think, you know, a, a better example would be French quite, cons- you know, clearly and decisively allowing probably the ground shaking military victory of the uh of, you know of the age of empires is probably a slightly bigger thing for them to to be bearing in mind um going forwards into the modern day it's fair the average frenchman that i've met doesn't really care much about 20 years ago let alone 600 yeah. years ago yeah you know it's not it's not you know immediately a thing on on their mind you know i, I just imagine somebody kind of waking up in the in you know some Parisian suburb, thinking, ah, I um, I really need to get some stuff done today, but god damn it, I'm just so fucking angry about Agincourt. So I'm just this day's just a yeah. write off, and I blame you, Britain. Really? Is that is that a, a reasonable yeah. expectation? To, to do we think this is the single cause of antidepressant <laughs> prescriptions across yeah, the whole of France? Think, yeah. I think not. Frenchman just waking up in a cold sweat, just uh, throw about <gasps> Agincourt. And then, and yeah, how, how, or, or just like, be like, oh, you know, the, the the British Prime Minister's on the phone. No, let it ring. We'll 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 ring them back in five minutes. But until I can get the the image of arrows out of my brain, then I just can't possibly interact with that nation across the sea. Yeah. We'll need to ring back after October the twenty sixth, yes, yes. just to be sure. Yeah. Although, in the interest of clarity, <laughs> I am making notes of my special limited edition Agincourt twenty. 600 anniversary pen. So um, <laughs> one side might be into it a little bit more than the other. <laughs> but anyway. Oh, there goes the French listeners. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. If you could all come back, he would say it was actually an Azancor pen, not an Azancor <laughs> pen, wasn't it? Okay, well, this view isn't just tied into Britain. You know, as you mentioned before, uh, the irony is that 
this view seems to take hold a bit in America mm. as well. I mean, Patton is said to have said that he'd rather have a German division in front of him than a French one behind him, which was logical because that he was pointing his guns yeah. at the German ones. <laughs> but even as late as, you know, the late 20th century, Schwarzkopf said going to war without France, like hunting without an accordion. How much of the American view, and to some extent the, the British view as well, may stem from them not following the US into Iraq? I think a lot of it does. I, I mean, I'm going to, you know, there's, there's got to be a possibility that there is a, a chunk of your of your listenership who are not old enough to have lived through the freedom fries discourse. Mm. And for those people, oh God, I envy you so much because it was so fucking stupid. Everything about it was ridiculous and kind of sad, even at the time of the, the idea that somehow... That, that France not following the US into Iraq or kind of appearing to be as committed to the, the global war on terror as other nations like Britain was, is in somehow some kind of deep borderland be- or kind of borderline betrayal of Western democracy. You know, the, the idea of revolutionary freedom that was, uh, you know, forged between George Washington and um, Lafayette um, and, you know, burned brightly in the breasts of all true Americans and all true Frenchmen and the like. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's a lot to do with that kind of aspect of an annoyance of France asserting their own politics and their own foreign policy and their own right to decide which endless wars they want to get involved in. And somehow them taking their own decisions is a betrayal of those who liberated them in the Second World War. And that's what I think it also comes back to, the idea that they're not grateful enough for what we did for them. Therefore, they should shame themselves to whichever decisions we make for the rest of time. And it's just, it's ludicrous. It's its so weird yeah. that because we did this for you, you know, there was no benefit to Britain or America of, you know, liberating mainland Europe from from the Third Reich. It was purely done to help the French. And where's the gratitude, guys? <laughs> yeah, I would, and, and America thinking that is uh, another risk of, you know, adding our American listeners to the exodus <laughs> as come, well. Go. I mean, God forbid that a country doesn't enter a war at the start. Yes. Yeah. They bide their fucking time to see the which way the wind is blowing. You know, it's I've always been a defender of the Americans not turning up in the Second World War until 1941, not turning up in the First World War at the start and so forth. I mean, it isn't their war. It's, it's got bollock all to do with them. And why on earth they should expend a shit ton of their own civilians in pursuing that course... Rightly or wrongly, you know, everybody's got their opinion on that. But but to not go in at the start is not some massive dereliction of duty on that. It's, it's a sensible decision of a country that is safeguarding its population. And Whether you agree with it or not, you can see that's the route that they're taking. And France doing the same thing is apparently beyond the pale. Yes. And they turned out to be right, because it turns out there was no long-term plan <laughs> um, for, for how to deal with these yeah. things. So actually, how... the French decision looks like a really salient one. Yeah. Yeah. You can see, you can see, why, you can see why a country might cling to a myth. Yes. <laughs> so we've already touched on the world wars, which hang over this quite a lot. And part of this myth is that for France, for France the First World War was a defeat, even though they won. But they clearly didn't surrender. How did France fight in the First World War? Incredibly well, I think, Mm. given the circumstances, is probably the answer to that. And for a fair part of the war, a damn sight better than the British did. Now, you get... There's a fairly hefty fucking asterisk over some of that with regards (laughs) to, you know, the the Battle of the Frontiers in, in 1914 is is not something that anybody should be putting on their CV um, going forwards in regards to sound military logic and the like, where the, you know, the French are losing more each day than the British ended up losing on the first day of the Somme. But the, 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 the First World War has entered our kind of popular, and by our, I mean the British kind of, and makes sense to the Americans, popular mindset as a war between Britain and Germany fought in Belgium, 
and a bit of France. And also the French were sort of there occasionally as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah. how on earth you you can look at any aspect of the First World War and come away with that conclusion. The French hold the most line. The French have the most soldiers. The French fight the most battles. The French defend the most territory. The French take the most losses. The guy who conjures up the Allied victory, again, Allied, not British victory Mm -hmm. in the First World War, is um, Ferdinand Foch. So if anything, if anybody can lay a claim to this being a national victory, it's the French. You know, it's it's an Allied victory led by a French general at the end of a conflict for which the French fought in greater numbers and at greater cost and at greater length than the British do. And yet, apparently, what we take out of this is, good job, everyone. We we won this war. The French weren't any fucking help. But, you know, that's the French for you. You know, we still, in this country, kind of conjure up. And, and you know, with, with, with justification, you know, the, the, the very bloody battles of the Somme and uh, Ypres and uh, uh, Passchendaele and all of them, all of them pale in, in certainly in regards to time and to amount of soldiers fighting there to Verdun, which is just the most horrendous, longest running battle of the First World War that so massively damages the French military psyche and what their soldiers are willing to accept and what they're willing to accept from their allies. It has a utterly transformative impact and an ongoing legacy for the French. And the British just don't care to, in the modern world. They don't really understand it at the time. They don't understand what's happening. Um, they don't understand what the consequences of this will be. But also we just erase France from the national picture. You can go to and buy like any number of books from like a, a shelf in Waterstones about the First World War and they don't mention the French. It's just absolute kind of ridiculous blinkered national history to cut out the most important country on the Western Front in favour of elevating us to some kind of higher power. It's not my area of expertise, First World War. It's, it's always one of those that I've just kind of skipped aside, but you you talk there about you know Verdun being the the big yeah, important the main event. Talk me through Verdun. So Verdun is often described as being like a, a ten or eleven month long attritional battle. Um, what the Germ- it's, it's a German offensive. Um, one of the the few German offensives after nineteen fourteen on the Western Front, aimed at either smashing through the French defences at Verdun, which is a huge fortress city to the kind of the, to the east of Paris. It's seen traditionally and historically is like the gateway to Paris. Um, yeah. It's a it's a city of tremendous kind of national prestige to the French. Um, so it's either smashing through there and then marching on to Paris or forcing the French to stand their ground and fight there so you can kill as many of them as possible. The truth is probably lies somewhere in between because the guy in charge, uh, von Falkenhayn, it's not particularly clear and he likes to wreck on his own military strategies afterwards. But what you basically end up with is a battle that begins in February of 1916 and runs until about November of 1916 of just endless fighting. And the the Germans basically commit an army to that point and that army is just basically going to have to stay there and do the job. The French realise that they're going to get chewed up forever in this. So what they end up doing is they cycle the entirety of the the French army through Verdun. So they spread the damage out. So no single division or single army gets absolutely obliterated there. But what that means is like virtually every French soldier goes and fights at Verdun. It becomes like the shared formative experience of the Mm. French army. And And it tremendously exhausts them. It damages them. It places... You know, huge amounts of stress on the, the French military and the, and the relationship between the military and the government to the extent that the French army mutiny in 1917. But mutiny even then is like, it, it's the wrong word. They go on strike basically for workers' conditions in a sense of we're not going to keep going over the top in these stupid battles where you get us all killed. We're not going to run away because we don't want to lose. But until you start treating us as, as, as civilians, you know, empowered political agents within the French Republic, then we're just going to wait here. And eventually they're kind of, they, they all get, get remobilized. But what it means to the French, and this is 
will come into to, to play in in due course is that they're they're just not ex- willing French soldiers to accept anything less anymore than either you know their their own you know lives being respected, but they're not willing to respect or or accept their their leadership treating them in a bad manner, and they're not willing to accept their allies being any less invested in this than they are, and that ends up meaning that the 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 French army that ends the First World War victorious is also a profoundly damaged thing, which has an impact again with how they fight in the Second World War and what the what can be asked of the French people in the Second World War. But the French undertake and achieve things which, you know, a hundred years later astound me. Um, that you could you could ask people to do these things and and they would find a way to do them. There's um one of my favourite quotes is by a uh, a French soldier called, um, I think it's Raymond Joubert, who fights and dies at, uh, at Verdun. Um, and he writes that we're not going to, uh, they're not going to be able to ask us to do this again another day. To do so would be to misconstrue the efforts of the people taking part. They'll have to, in the future, rely on those who have not lived out these days. And it's it's that, you know, we we've done everything you've asked, but we can't, we can't do it again. We don't have it left in us. You're going to have to find new people or another way to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that commitment to the war effort, to the battle, to France is absolutely kind of the, the, the opposite of this idea that, Oh, the French will just jack it in. Like they, they, they stood and fought for four years and they committed, you know, everything they had to this, to the extent that you know the the countryside is ruined, the the the, the army is exhausted, the, the civil military you know kind of agreement is shattered by it. France is a yeah. broken nation at the end of it because they would not surrender. You mentioned a few of the things there that you'd say that you know achievements in Verdun yes. are, are absolutely astounding. Can you give us some examples of those for for the people that haven't looked at First World War? Yeah, so the, the very early parts of of the battle, there's you often get the idea that you know, uh, or the suggestion this is generally lobbed at British generals that they're fighting the previous war. The French are very much preparing to fight the previous war. The idea that the, the lessons they learned from the Franco-Prussian War is that defenses and fortresses are bad. You get bottled up in them and then you lose. So there's loads of fortresses at Verdun and they just strip the guns out of them because they think, well, we're not going to need these. We don't want to get bottled up in this concrete tomb um, when we want to be able to move. We want mobility. Mm -hmm. So when the Germans attack, Verdun is basically undefended. They only kind of get realise what's about to happen a few weeks in advance. It snows, which delays the German offensive and they get to kind of rebuild the the. Uh, the defence is there. So the Germans make huge gains early on. They take, you know, some of the huge kind of really super famous forts like Fort Douaumont and Fort Vaux fall very, very quickly, basically without fight in the early parts. Um, and it's a, you know, a huge kind of publicity prestige blow to France. Um, so then the French are committed. They have to fight. Uh, they have to regain it. They have to, to to kind of do all these things. And what you end up with is... You know, every French soldier walking along the Voie Sacrée, the, the the sacred way, which is the road in and out of, of Verdun, um, which is kept clear. So, you know, it's constantly in use, 24 hours a day, 365 effectively, of supplies and soldiers being moved in, wounded and exor- undead mo- being moved out or the like. And the, the, the logistic effort of it is astonishing. You know, you're talking millions of shells, you know, hundreds of thousands of men marching yeah. up and down. It's astonishing. And by the end of the year, the French have retaken everything they lost in those opening weeks of Dumont. So you, you get end up with that kind of, oh, you know, you're back where you started. It was all for nothing. So, well, you can make that argument for the Germans, the French retook everything and they paid for every single step of the way and you know you can argue continually about in things about the first world war about whether or not it was worth it or not but the french step by step fought their way back across the the, the verdun battlefields to, to reclaim it and it's a major um jumping off point in for you know operations in 1917 but it's a major theater of battle in 1918 for the americans you know without necessarily the you know recapturing the fortresses recapturing the land killing quite a lot of germans who knows what the hundred days offensive looks like yeah yeah and that's not 
that that's not a group of people who are surrendering and running away. No, no absolutely not. And I mean, you know, it is genuinely offensive to suggest to, to 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 apply that to to a nation that has you know stood and fought for four years when for quite a lot of those years britain is not fighting in any meaningful way an infantry war um, and the french are very angry about it which you know whether or not we want to dig into that now is that the irony is that in the first world war i you know the french would say that the british would surrender and run away we are the cheese-eating surrender monkeys they just think we're not invested in it. We're and with really bad cheese. Yeah. Oh, God, that's awful stuff. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, you could probably beat a, a German to death with one um, if, if push came to shove. But at various points, the French think they call, us parade, they call the British parade ground soldiers. They look great. They're absolutely fucking useless on the battlefield. Their generals are idiots. They advance standing upright and they get killed because they don't want to lie in the mud because it makes them dirty. So they're, they're utterly you know dead English are, are no use to us. And... When push comes to shove in 1918, during the German Spring Offensive, the British fucking run away. And the French soldiers absolutely lose their minds. There's there's whole reams of material in the French postal censor records of French soldiers being incandescent because their argument is we've been here for four years. We went through 1915. We went through Verdun in 1916 and everything we Mm. lived through and fought through. And we got through 1917, which was awful. And we, and, you know, we mutinied and the weather was dreadful and everything about it was horrible. And now in 1918, you're fucking running away now. And we're going to lose because you're not invested in this. The French were f- furious. And many of them never really forgave Britain and British soldiers for the rest of the war for it. Yeah. So if they wanted to get on their ass about Agincourt, they've got much more recent... Mm. Yeah, you jeopardise. Yeah. I mean, there were you know there were very good reasons why the British had to withdraw from Saint Quentin. Uh, you know, a lot of angry Germans were running uh, in their direction, and they were getting shelled to shelled mm. to fuck. But you know, apparently those aren't good enough reasons for giving the French some leeway in in the Second World War. So why should they be used to give us some leeway in the First World War? Yeah, yeah, good. Point. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Point. So you mean you hinted earlier on that uh, about how the, the the attitude of the French during the First World War kind of leads in then to how they approach the Second World War. So we're often you're often pointed at you know surrender and collaboration in World War Two. That, that's what France is painted to be. Yes. What you know what, what's the reality there, and uh, and how does the First World War kind of help towards France being defeated in the Second World War, at least at the start. So I mentioned earlier on this idea that, oh, you know, like you're fighting the previous war as an accusation, when to an extent, most countries are fighting the previous war. It's the only thing you, it's, you know, it's the most recent thing you've got yeah. to go on. Um, you know, technology mm. and things may evolve, but you, you've got to draw on what you know. And what you end up with is France preparing to fight the First World War again, whilst aware that they can't ask their soldiers to fight the First World War again. So, you know, there, there are various kind of, not, not even necessarily what if, just kind of evaluations of French military strength at the outbreak of the Second World War, where actually the French military on paper appears to be incredibly strong. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a mind game exercise of what happens if France goes immediately on the offensive in 1939, um, you, know, it, you know, as soon as Germany invades Poland. But what the French have been doing is basically 
building a bigger version of Verdun, you know, the, the Maginot Line, huge concrete bunkers, massive defensives yeah. and the like, and thinking, well, we can't, we can't ask because France is broken. France is not the same as it was before 1914. We cannot ask men to go into battle and just go over the top again and go on the offensive again and rack up, you know, another 100,000 casualties in the early parts of of the war the morale isn't there the energy isn't there the mentality isn't there so what we can do is ring ourselves with defensives and we'll just wait it out it worked in the last one uh you know forcing the attacker to attack and smash themselves to death on concrete bunkers and the like will blunt the german army and the joke about the national line is always why the germans just went round it but actually, that's Imagino line working almost entirely as intended. It yeah. forced the Germans yeah. to do something utterly ridiculous that wasn't thought to be possible, simply to avoid frontally assaulting it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, 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 the Germans might have gone round it, but that's what you do with massive fortifications yeah. along a border. Yeah. You know, if you're going to pick a thing, yeah, I'll, I'll pick the option that appears to be incredibly difficult maybe impossible rather than assault the machine guns and the artillery and the concrete because you're not getting through yeah. it you've got to consider that for for all the mockery of the Maginot line the third reich has looked at the Maginot line and gone Don't you know what it. that impassable forest it looks like the easier yeah. option yeah yeah the, the, clearly the logical solution is to just see if we can hack our way through the ardennes yeah um, yeah, so, so yeah, but the, the, the war gets underway. The war gets underway. And the, the, the Germans achieve the impossible and, you know, we'll ignore the phony war because it's boring. You know, large parts of the Second World War, but then I say, would say that because I'm a First World War historian. <laughs> Germans get round the Maginot Line, the, you know, that Western Front collapses. Everyone has to start kind of kind of pulling back. And then we get to the the real kind of weird fucking duality of this where you're going to get two things that are identical happening but one is super heroic and the other is just unfettered cowardice which is the french and the british are going to retreat and the british are going to evacuate off of dunkirk which apparently is not a retreat and is not running away and is not abandoning a european ally to their fate Uh, bearing in mind British High Command does not tell the French that they are about to institute Operation Dynamo and evacuate themselves from from the Dunkirk beaches. Whilst the evacuation is taking place, you know, a lot of French are fighting and dying to ensure that the British Expeditionary Force can be evacuated from Dunkirk. Yeah, a, that's not a running away and surrendering. Yeah, there's, there's a historian um, at Leeds called Nina Wardworth who did a really good article for The, the Conversation uh, about the time that uh, the film Dunkirk came out, basically saying that like 50 to 90,000 French soldiers die in that time period. And, you know, a decent chunk of them are dying to maintain the defences that will allow for the BEF to abandon all of their equipment and their military hardware and escape with their lives. And also 130,000 French be evacuated off of the, the beaches from Dunkirk, who will within a few weeks be returned to France to fight, die or be captured. And the British will just wait it out on the other side of, of the channel. But once that the Maginot collapses and, you know, the war becomes a mobile one and, the, you know, the, the Germans have have initiative and the like, there's an argument, you know, this isn't part of the, the main thing that actually you know, smashing France so quickly and run, and but not running the British into the sea is the worst form of victory that the Germans could have achieved on the Western Front because they don't actually achieve any of their objectives. You know, they may conquer France, but they don't close the Western Front down as a military theatre. They don't knock Britain out of the fight. They don't erase a government or, or stop there being a French government in exile, um, which means they have to continue mm-hmm. manning a Western Front for the foreseeable future when, you know, I imagine quite a lot of those guys could be used fighting you know very very angry russians mm. um out in the east but you know france is france is beaten and conquered that is not the same as just surrendering in the same way that britain was beaten but wasn't conquered cuz britain could escape across the channel and then there's you know quite a lot of water yeah. in between uh that there is no difference to what's happening to the british in that may 1940 period uh than what's happening in the, to the french the only difference is there's somewhere for the british to run away to yeah, yeah, it's the same defeat. Yes, yeah. we don't come out of it looking any any better. All that Dunkirk 
achieves is turning an absolute unmitigated fucking catastrophe into a just about respectable route. Yeah. <laughs> Nicely put. And that's Nicely it. Put. That's the level that it is. And and the idea that this is something, you know, oh, this fantastic. I mean, even Churchill says you can't win wars with victories like this. Yeah. You know, this no one should be should be viewing this as anything other than a disaster of apocalyptic levels. Yeah, the rescue at Dunkirk, I will say, is, you know, it's miracle, it's how it's heroic, it's all of those things. The actual reason that Dunkirk happens is none of those no. things. Yeah, we got smashed. The Britain gets smashed just the same as the French do. It's it's an allied defeat. And, you know, what comes afterwards for France with the Vichy government and, you know, occupation and the, the concept of Vichy syndrome, which is the French trying to find a way to understand and and remember what has happened to them in a way, given that, you know, there is collaboration, there is fascist sympathising, yeah. you know, Patan completely, you know, ha- having been viewed as a First World War hero is now, you know, a, a, a quasi micro Hitler because of his, his fascistic sympathies and his fascistic tendencies, is a huge problem for the French, um, both at the time, and it continues to be one one now. And, you know, that is something that over time French, France as a country and French as a people and French historians are going to process and going to have to to go some way to processing. But it, it's, it's odd actually you say that, because um, Germany is kind of reckoning with its past yes and could the same be said of france at this moment that's a difficult one there's something something quite interesting's happened within the field of french first world war studies recently in the i say recently i mean within like the last 10 years maybe a bit more it's a lot of established french first world war historians have been stopping looking at the first world war and have been moving on to the second world war clearly like this there's almost like some cultural sing signal enough time has started to pass now that we can start to look at this because the other joke you know and this one is 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 mean but there's there's an element of truth to it because of the idea of you know rationalization of of france and vichy syndrome and and, and the resistance is that you know if the Maquis and the resistance had had as many people in it who claimed to have been in it, then France would have been ungovernable for for the Germans. You know, the the idea is that, you know, oh, you know, Mm -hmm. this place was occupied, but these people weren't sympathisers or collaborators. We were all in the resistance. Like, well, how can that be true? You know, at some level, there has to have been some form of collaboration and and, and, and working. You can't have all have been underground secret freedom fighters because the entire country would have risen up. So yeah, you you need to do that with a with a state yes. and an infrastructure and that needs to be there and G- Germany can't do that on its no, own. No, it can't. So yeah, the the idea that, you know, everybody was resisting, well, well that clearly wasn't true in the same way that you know, it wasn't true on the Channel Islands and it wasn't true in regards to, you know, what would have happened if if Nazi occupation had had arrived in in Britain, you know, there would have been any number of people who resisted as well as a group of those who would have not. Yeah. And that's something that France is going to have to reconcile itself to in the way that other European countries are going to have to have reconciled themselves to it as well. So just going on to, you you mentioned uh, Patan going from uh, First World War hero to fascist collaborator. Yeah. Let's move on to the other big Second World War leader. So de Gaulle, twat or not? Oh, God. I mean, honestly... Find me the, like the military or political leader who, of this time period who isn't a twat. And like I wouldn't want to have Good any point. of these people in my house as, a, as an example of, of like a starting point for them. And there's also an element of, you know, the, the, the post-war political or military memoir is yet to be written entitled, I Got a Lot of Things Wrong. Um, <laughs> all of these people view themselves to be absolute luminary fucking geniuses surrounded by mediocre midgets and the only reason that anything got done was because god damn it they were there to do it 
And that's true of like First World War memoirs. It's true of Second World War memoirs. All of these people basically believe themselves to have been put on God, put on Earth by God for this fucking moment. And as a result, God, can you even imagine going to and like having a conversation with one of these people? Just the sheer levels of tedious ego um, mm. that would be on display from any of them. I think the fact that we are a Britain less forgiving of de Gaulle is because de Gaulle's stance points post-war have direct impact on Britain in regards to, you know, joining the EC and the, the nascent European Union. But the irony of that is that France is effectively applying the, the lesson that they have taken from Britain. Um, the idea that, you know, Britain has no permanent friends, only permanent interests. You know, Britain may act like an ally one day of the week, but in the long term, they will act in their own hard, cold-eyed self-interest. Mm. And that's what de Gaulle did. <laughs> he acted in what he perceived yeah, to be yeah. his own and France's cold, hard-eyed self-interest. And, you know, for any number of reasons, Britain can get annoyed about that because it impacted Britain's self-interest. But, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And, you know, that's that's the rules of the game, kids. Yeah, I suppose, you know, for all the reputation de Gaulle's had, I mentioned Patton earlier on. Yeah. Good Lord. Jesus he's, Christ. He's not even he's not even respected by his own side, is no. he? No. Again, even just God I, trying to have a like I'm gonna have a conversation with Patton. Everyone around you will be going, Don't. It's not worth it. Mate, God, mate, it's mate, just gonna be mate, fucking dreadful. Mate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean the hundred and first weren't even happy he turned up to Bastogne, were they? So, oh, goody, you're here. This is what I was oh, desperately looking this, forward this, to. This this guy. So to begin to wrap things up to a nice ending, everyone, the obvious example is Napoleon. But who are some French generals and perhaps even French individual soldiers in throughout history that defy this cheese-eating surrender monkey reputation? So there's a few. And some of them, again, I, I, I might have possibly picked to be contrary. Um, so, so I get the contrary one out of the way first. Mm-hmm. Go yep. for it. You've got to say, if, you know, Britain has accepted that, you know, Winston Churchill played a key role in motivating his country and maintaining morale and providing a driving force for victory in the Second World War, then you have to say de Gaulle for doing much the same thing, for yep. keeping the light of freedom burning in the free French army and the free French movement and providing a figurehead. So the contrary answer to that is if, if you're going to apply the logic to Churchill, you're going to have to apply the logic to de Gaulle and end up taking them both on their on their merits and the like. My, my instincts are, you know, Napoleon III is not going to make this list. You know, very much... Good. Very, very bad choices. Yes. Um, why would you fight this war? Why would you fight it this badly? Now you get what you get. So my instincts lead me very much to, to First World War examples. And I think that you have to put Ferdinand Foch on the list. Because to all intents and purposes, as far as, as, far as kind of like, to an extent I'm concerned, you know, is the single man to win the First World War. He is the Allied general in charge of the Allied victory in 1918. Um, the man that the Allied t- Allies turned to at the height of the German spring offensives when it looked like there was a decent chance they were going to lose this war. And he was the guy who orchestrated the, the victory. So, so often we, we look at the First World War as being, you know, stupid generals and bad strategy and, you know, s- stationary and, you know, it, it ended because everyone got tired and it turns out the Germans were slightly more fucking tired on that day of the week than the Allies were. And that's why they all went home. And, you know, tiny elements of that, some of that is true. But the Allies win the First World War. It is a military victory in the field. There is no doubt at the end of that conflict who has won and who has lost. And because of that, you have to give a fairly hefty chunk of the credit to the guy in charge when it's won. And, you know, there is a reason why Ferdinand Foch has uh, a statue of himself outside Victoria Station. You know, nobody notices it, but he is an absolute iconic French hero for for the ages because, you know, that is an existential war as far as the French are concerned. They consider it to be eschatological in its nature. You know, if, if France is defeated, this is the apocalypse. Um, the Germans are not going to leave this time. They are going to destroy everything in this country. And therefore, to win it, 
is a triumph of France and civilization and the spirit of la patrie. Um, so therefore, you've got to put Foch on on the list, the man who wins the First World War. For individual soldiers within that, um, there's a guy called Emile Drion, who is the guy who raises the alarm at Verdun, who basically goes over his own general's head and pulls in political connections to, to get um, alarms raised within like the French parliament of there are a lot of Germans over there. More of them are turning up every single day. There are no guns here in our fortresses. There is no defences here. We are undermanned. If we do not do something immediately, then the Germans are going to overrun us here. And then the whole game is up for grabs um, because we're not going to be able to stop them. There's nothing here and there's nothing behind us either. And various generals are you know, furious that he went over their heads and the, the politicians got involved and eventually they started sending soldiers and defences and, the, and it snowed so the, 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 the Germans were delayed. Drion is on the front line the day that the Germans attack at Verdun in February in 1916. His position is overrun, he is surrounded, he is killed in action alongside his men. His Apparently his final words are uh, mon dieu, or basically oh my god as kind of realising that, you know, Germans are streaming past and he gets shot to death in in a shell hole. But to apply that surrender monkey label to him, how fucking dare you? He has stu- literally stood and fought to the last man and been killed in action um, in the opening stages of what will be the defining French battle of the First World War. Um, the victory, you know, the, the, the fact that France effectively wins that battle and Germany loses it will have a tremendous impact on the outcome of that war. And to suggest to him and all of the guys around him were just waiting for a chance to surrender. Get fucked. <laughs> well said that man. Man, thank you very much, Chris. I'm I'm really glad that this has cleared the air. <laughs> I, I, oh, I I'm, I'm not sure we will. <laughs> Feeling better? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, yeah, that's that's taken. It's, it feels like it's a load off. Yeah, I'm not sure if we'll ever really dent this reputation. I think it might be there for eternity, yeah. but uh, we have definitely done our bit for the Entente Cordial. <laughs> so, so thank you very much for coming. You are very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. If you'd like to know more about the attitudes and politics of the French Republic, or in fact the old or the new Republic, then uh, you can start by reading Chris's books, and we're going to have links to both of them in the show notes. And you can follow him on Twitter at Chris Kemp's Hall, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. But once again, Chris, thank you very much for coming on to History Rage. Thanks very much, guys, and, and I hope everybody enjoyed the rage. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you subscribe to us on Patreon, you're really helping us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, the invite to put questions to future guests and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.